Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're currently in chapter 3 at verse 1. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony, and I'm glad you joined me today for this Bible study. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, where it says this. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. 
And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So we find here in the first half of chapter 3 the introduction to a very, very familiar story. But this story is, uh, is to be taken in its own context right here in this book. Because why? Because chapter 3 follows chapter 2. Just in case you missed it, chapter 2 comes before chapter 3. And there's a reason for that. In fact, uh, this could almost be considered to be one complete story, but for the sake of uh, the ease of our study and the ease of our comprehension, we've actually divided it up. Uh, divided it up, and that meant uh, that uh, these stories started with chapter one and the transfer from uh, from Jerusalem or Judea to the University of Babylon, and then chapter two we have this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then. Then the long story included Daniel uh, not only giving the contents of the dream back to the king uh, as if Daniel had seen the dream himself, and so that validated the, his, authority to, his authority to interpret this dream for the king. Well, in that dream of chapter 2, we found that uh, the dream included a statue of sorts, an image of sorts, but that image changed its metallic or its, its, uh, its content from the head all the way down to the toes and the feet. In other words, it shifted in, uh, in the materials that comprised this uh, statue. And of course, we find that in chapter 2, verse 38, where Daniel gives the interpretation. And uh, you can go back and read that if you care to, where it says this, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, this is verse 38 of uh, chapter 2 of Daniel, he has given them into your hand, has, has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So Daniel makes very, very clear that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon is the head of gold. Something about the description of the authority in which uh, this particular king ruled his kingdom and the strength of that authority, or the you might say the purity of that authority, was rich, was, was a wealth. Uh, now, in our books, uh, or in our way of thinking, uh, this may have looked like tyranny, and it probably Probably was. Uh, it was a, a dictatorship of sort uh, through this monarchy of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But the point is, the 
the image is to give the indication that this was an authoritative regime, but it is to be followed by separate regimes. And in fact, that's the where in verse 39 of chapter 2, where Daniel continues on and says the, 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 the chest of silver It says, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then a third kingdom of bronze. So the the abdomen and the uh, hips of bronze was a third different kingdom. And that's the way Daniel relayed this uh, interpretation before the king. Then, of course, he says in verse 40, there's a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And in fact, that iron kingdom was through the legs of this image all the way down to the feet. But at the feet and the toes, the the, uh, iron was mixed with common clay or pottery, if you might say. And uh, in my way of thinking, I think uh, the best way of understanding it perhaps is is, uh, concrete with rebar. And uh, although it has certain strength to it. And yet, on the other hand, because those two ingredients don't combine real well, uh, then that also becomes the very weakness of that kind of structure between the iron and the pottery. But that that was those, uh, those four kingdoms, those four empires comprised what Daniel wanted to relay by the power of the Holy Spirit and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so I think that uh, what we see there is a very clear indication of what we now go back and we can study uh, the history of those Gentile empires who dominated Israel in various stages. And that meant the gold was, of course, the Babylonian Empire from 605 to 539 B.C. And then the silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire, and in fact, uh, if the silver were uh, was composed of the, the arms and the chest of that image, then you see the two arms of that empire is the Medes and the Persians. But uh, regardless of that, that empire uh, was from 539 to 331 BC. Then the bronze represents uh, by process of, of uh, just continuation of that same Uh, method of interpreting those first two, then we come to the bronze as the Grecian Empire. The Greek Empire, especially under the leadership of Alexander the Great, was established in 331 BC, and it lasted all the way to 146 BC when the Grecian Empire uh, was conquered by Rome. And so Rome and the Roman Empire and the Caesars of Rome represent that kingdom of iron that was to follow the rest of the other kingdoms. So, you see, we need that context because without that context, this particular first sentence may not make sense. And in, and yet, for the most part, I do believe that uh, some of our preaching and, and some of our Sunday school lessons have only got to the juicy parts of Daniel. And because of that, we immediately go to where uh, uh, the three 
are tossed into the furnace and and they're bold in their proclamation. And we really want to get to that because that's that's very interesting to children in their Sunday school classes uh, because these three uh, Jewish uh, young men were able to stand boldly and, and not obey the king. But but before we get to that particular point of the story, we need to understand this context. The context is that first sentence, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. What does that mean? It means more than the fact that Nebuchadnezzar built an idol. You see, idolatry was rife in the the, uh, kingdom of Babylon. And uh, the fact that at the end of chapter two, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar recognized Daniel's God as having uh, the ability to interpret his dream, that kind of loyalty kind of dissipated, you might say. He wasn't serving the God of Daniel and the God of Daniel only. All it meant was that he had incorporated, incorporated Daniel's God into his pantheon of gods. And so that's all it meant was he promoted Daniel's God into into that realm of Babylon as being equal to the rest. Well, what's interesting is then uh, many years later, he builds this image of gold. But you see, you need to understand how dramatic that move on the king's part was. Why is it dramatic? Because you see, Daniel had already explained that God's word to him had included that the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. The rest of the image was to be composed of other empires, not his, not Babylon. So the fact that Daniel built an image of gold isn't just an idol, it is a defiant affront to the words and the prophetic words of Daniel. We'll be back right after this. you see, when Nebuchadnezzar built this image, this was, this was an act of defiance. It was an act of rebellion. This was an, uh, an, an act of uh, in-your-face God of Daniel. And uh, he, Nebuchadnezzar completely goes against the, the words of God. And he sets up this image instead that is comprised completely of gold. There, there are no changes in materials along the way from the head to the, to the body and arms, to the abdomen and hips, to the, to the legs and the feet and the toes. There, there are no changes. He completely makes it all of gold. So you see, that is the real drama. It, it isn't the fact necessarily of mere idolatry, although idolatry is involved. But this is a direct 
rebellion against the words of Daniel that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar about Nebuchadnezzar's own dream that God had given him. So you see, it is not coincidental that this king sets up this statue in the middle of this plain of Dura. Now, we don't really know exactly where this location was as far as the geography is concerned, except it's described as being in the province of Babylon. And so if this was built out on uh, the plain somewhere on flat level ground, then the fact of that it stood 60 cubits tall meant that you could see it for uh, miles around, literally, and uh, yet they had this dedication service. And notice the dimensions was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. Now, we don't know exactly what its depth was, how thick it was at its base, but it seems as though that uh, this particular uh, statue may have been resting upon a huge pedestal. And uh, in order for the dimensions of of uh, the uh, uh, the width of uh, six cubits and the height of sixty cubits, that would have made a very elongated uh, human um, man statue. And uh, and yet, I, I think uh, perhaps there was a a tall pedestal underneath. And notice uh, too that that it seems to be that Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for this, and he wants to make this a centerpiece of worship but there is not an indication that Nebuchadnezzar actually takes on the role of deity himself or that people are commanded to worship him they are commanded to worship this this statue this element that is to represent the kingdom that he has established. That's what they're to worship, and that is not to be replaced by any other kingdom. This is the king establishing his legacy. This is his legacy. He knows that he's not going to reign on that throne of Babylon forever. Yes, he, he's very aware of that, but he wants the empire that he established to, uh, to continue on, that it won't be replaced by the kingdom of silver or the kingdom of bronze or the kingdom of iron or the iron mixed with clay. There won't be those other kingdoms following him, it will still be his kingdom that he made, and it will last, and it will continue on. That is the defiance that this king had against the words of God. That's the mythology that he now wants to leave as his legacy. So he brings in all the government officials from all the different provinces all around the, uh, the empire of Babylon which is far flung by this time, and it includes lots of uh, the bureaucracy of his governor, uh, governing empire, and uh, there's a whole list there. You can read it, in fact, in the reading uh, section of uh, the, this presentation. We went through it several different times because it's recorded several different times for us so that we are aware this is a, a huge gathering. This is, this is as much of a centerpiece of the empire of Babylon as you can get because it involves everybody that's anybody in the kingdom. 
And uh, they're all standing before the image. And the the herald makes this declaration, of course, that everybody is supposed to bow down at the uh, when when the uh, when the maestro cues the orchestra and the orchestra uh, uh, plays the uh, uh, plays whatever this is going to be, whatever music it is. It doesn't say what what the music uh, actually is, but this orchestra is comprised of lots of different uh, instruments. In fact. In fact, there are three instruments that uh, are that Daniel uses to uh, the lyre and the psaltery and the bagpipe. This is just a small little piece of trivia, you might say. Uh, those are are Greek names for Greek instruments. That doesn't mean that that Daniel, as an author, or that this, uh, there is some sort of a uh, a pseudo Daniel writing during the Greek Empire, and that's uh, that's the reason why some people put. Uh, an author uh, that's uh, writing under Daniel's name, they want to put him in the Greek empire because of how accurate that Daniel was in his predictions about the Greek empire. And so they don't believe that there is such a thing as a supernatural revelation of God. They want to somehow accommodate uh, a, a secular worldview one that doesn't include the intervention of God uh, inspiring an author to give him accurate information about the future. And so they invent this, this uh, hypothesis that uh, you see, and they, and they point to these three names of these particular three instruments, and they say, aha, you see, here Daniel used Greek words. Well, what's interesting is, is it could very well be, even at that time of the Babylonian Empire's uh, greatest uh, uh, greatest uh, uh, kingdom that it included uh, Greece, and that some of these instruments may have come from and may have been produced in Greece, and uh, and that's why they have Grecian names to them even before Greece becomes a dominant empire at all. So uh, it's very weak to build. A, a whole system of hypothesis about a whole different author just based on those three words and those three ter- terms of those uh, those particular instruments in the orchestra. But the whole point is that when the orchestra begins, they're supposed to bow down. That's worship. And uh, and so uh, everybody did it. The entire kingdom did it. You see, there are times in which the the uh, a culture or a tyrant or a dictator or even uh, the culture at large have have adopted a mythology of their own a way of explaining why we are here as a culture and that itself becomes a mythology if it is not grounded upon the history of God's work on earth and God's work in his words and God's work in revealing himself to the nation of Israel. If it doesn't include God's words and God's uh, explanation of what he did and how he brought it forth, then you see it becomes a mythology. And that mythology may have united a kingdom. It did more than unite a kingdom. It united like several different language groups, several different ethnic groups, several different nations that were now a part of Babylon. This instrument, this mythology that Nebuchadnezzar is building, 
in complete rebellion of God's words, that this becomes the center point, the gathering place, the, the, the religion, as well as the consensus of the entire culture, except for the fact of these three men, these young men. And guess what? There's somebody around to call attention to it. And it happens to be these Chaldeans. Well, a Chaldean isn't just an ethnic group, as we found out earlier. It actually refers to a technical group, a, uh, a group of, of, uh, on this committee of religion and spirituality, you might say. And they see themselves as some sort of enforcers of now this new religion. And so they definitely want to bring up the fact that, uh, King, you have these three in your midst. And, and, uh, I think it's interesting that they, they sort of kind of blame the King, sort of a backward blame when it says, uh, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. That's verse 12. So they actually draw Nebuchadnezzar as kind of an insult to him to say, uh, look, you appointed these guys and, and, uh, now they're not even worshiping the way you want them to worship. And instead they're standing and they're not kneeling down. And so these guys are the snitches. These guys are the reporters. And uh, they want Nebuchadnezzar to do something about this because uh, we have some non-conformists here and uh, they're not going along with this, this tyranny of dictatorship here. Notice that this dictatorship and this tyranny is only tyranny to the people who want to stand against it. You see, everybody else is in agreement. You see, you don't need a tyrant when, when you have a consensus in the culture. And that, I'm afraid, is what we are finding even in our own culture today. We find that our culture has drifted far away from its biblical roots. And we have find a culture that has adopted certain mythologies that supposedly unite us. But those mythologies are completely against God's words. And regardless of how important they might be, and regardless of how many people get on board, doesn't necessarily make the mythologies true. It may create a certain kind of unity, but it does not establish the groundwork of what God has given in his words. So you see, the king brings these three guys forward for their own investigation and guess what? They, uh, they fail the test. They don't worship. They continue to stand strong against the tide and against the king himself and his ordinance to worship this image because they're not about to be idolatrous uh, Jewish people at all. And they're not about to support this rebellion against the words that God has revealed to Daniel. So they stand strong. And they say, even if God does not deliver us, we still will not worship you. And there are some dear believers and, and some brothers and sisters in Christ who somehow believe that, that uh, we are to always give a positive confession. And that means that we can change the realities around us. And yet these three 
Jewish young men knew their God and knew that maybe, just maybe, they're not going to presume that God is going to exercise anything miraculous here. They merely know that even if he does not, that they are not going to bow the knee to this image. And that is what real faith is is truly about. It's not about telling God how much you believe he's going to do what you want. It's telling God, regardless of whether or not this turns out for my benefit, I'm still going to worship you. I'm not going to cave to the dictator around me or to the dictates of the culture around me. I'm going to stand upon the revealed truth of God. Thank you, dear Father, that you gave these young men courage to stand against the tide, to go against the grain, and to do so believing your words to be true and standing against the trend of the day and the culture of the day and even the government of that day in order to be loyal to you and to your words. We pray that you would give us the same kind of courage from the same source of your truth, your words, and your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.